You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, hello, all you wiretappers out there coming from the studio of Gangland Wire. Today, I want to talk about the identity of two informants that were codenamed Sporting Goods and Romano. These two guys were Chicago Outfit-connected guys. They were used by the well-known, either loved or hated FBI agent Bill Romer. I think Sam Giancana particularly hated Bill Romer. He was a real aggressive, big guy, had been an athlete in college, and he just drove Sam Giancana crazy. And he was aggressive with all these guys. I know, like here in Kansas City, I got a couple of stories from Bill Owsley and his old partner, Lee Flossie. And Flossie especially, he was an aggressive kind of guy, and he liked to walk up to some of these mobsters, and, and he'd always get a big cigar, and he'd start talking to them. They'd hang out in the city market, and he'd walk up to them, be talking to them, and he'd, like, take a big drag on that cigar and just blow smoke right in their face if they weren't, you know, cooperating in any manners. FBI agents are a little bit like coppers in some way. They can... <laughs> They can kind of stretch the rules a little bit, at least of civility. Many say that Romer was a blowhard and he made everything up. You know, he wrote several books, uh, but others would take his facts as gospel. You know, he wrote five books. He wrote five books and the publisher labeled all of them as nonfiction. And he did write one novel. I would imagine that all those nonfiction books are like any story that gets told. They're somewhere between total falsehoods Creative memory and solid facts is what you're going to find in Bill Romer's books and probably all the true crime books that you ever read and, and even all the nonfiction books that you ever read. You know, as I like to say, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. You know, and we have these memories that sometimes uh, are false. I mean, uh, I've talked with somebody about something we did on the police department and we each had separate memories, uh, totally opposite almost. So who knows, you know, what the real story was. Those books are the first one he did is in 1990, Romer, Man Against the Mob, and that basically goes over his career in the Chicago office of the FBI. He was a member of what they called the C-1 Squad here in Kansas City. They called it the 1 Squad. It was the uh, Organized Crime Squad. Number two book was War of the Godfathers, 1991. Now, this is one I'd never heard about before. The Amazon listing shows that it's about a conflict between Tony Accardo and Bill Bonanno over Las Vegas and getting money out of Las Vegas. And I've ordered it as a used paperback. I want to get that, and I'll probably go through that and do some stories out of it. Now, in it, he creates a name of an agent or the storyteller in it of Bill Richards, but he would admit later that was actually him talking and out of his own experience. Now, his third book was released in 1995. The title of it is Enforcer Spilatro, The Chicago Mobs Man Over Las Vegas. Now, I've got that book. It's got a lot of good stories in it. Uh, the ones that I know much about seem pretty true. I've used it whenever I did my stories on Spilatro. This last book is his novel. Can't find it anywhere. The title is Mob Power Plays, The Mob Attempts Control of Congress and Casinos. If any of you guys know about this out there, you got it. I'd be interested to hear about this. Uh, now, law enforcement has always used informants. I use informants. You know, I tell you what, in using informants, especially when you've got, you want an ongoing deep throat kind of guy that you can go to for anything at any time 
Sometimes they can tell you stuff and sometimes they can't. I know my first one in the uh, organized crime subculture, shall we say, after I went to the intelligence unit, I just let him go for a long time. He was caught up in a helping a mob guy with a stolen caterpillar. But he told us all about it, and he didn't really have anything else, I don't think. But And I just used him. I remember one time he had a guy came to him that had a stolen car that he wanted to sell. My guy had a body shop, so he got hold of me, and I said, okay, let's, I'll wire you up, and you got to go take a look at this car so we can find out where it is. And, and we kind of we thought we knew where it was. And so we got with John and wired him up, went over to this guy's house, and he went in the garage, and there was a car sitting there. And, and guy says, yeah, you know, it's it's stolen and didn't want very much money for it. And John kind of dickered around with him and then said, well, let me think about it. During this time, we'd wired him up. And what was really funny is we couldn't get close enough to pick up the signal without exposing ourselves too much. It was a kind of an odd place where this car was. And John also, we didn't get it on him very good. And it slipped out onto the floor and he just grabbed it up and stuck it in his pocket real quick and said, this damn pager keeps falling off my belt. Guy didn't even blink an eye because a couple of weeks later, we got it all set up and told John to get hold of him, telling him to bring it down to his body shop. He'd buy it for the price that the guy asked for. And set up with an attack unit, three or four guys, and they all had uh, unmarked cars, but they had red lights and siren in them. And, and so they set up all around where they could see the guy leave. They saw him leave. Saw him headed south towards John's body shop. And then one of them tried to stop him. And they weren't really, you know, there wasn't like another car in place, maybe in front of him or anything. And the guy ran and they lost him. And and we never did get that car. But what's funny is that guy didn't trip to the fact that John set him up. He thought it was just an accident. So the guy ditched that car. And then he came up with another one a couple months later, got hold of John. And on that one... We had John go over and take a look at it, and on that one, just served a search warrant on his house and sent him off to jail. Now, now we wouldn't have done that because it really put John at risk other than this was not a mob guy. He was kind of a part-time guy. We had another one that we set John up. I got a couple of guys from what they call the uh, Overland Park Sting. It's a suburban city here in Kansas City, a smaller police department that set up a reverse sting operation. These two guys were operating out of a house, and these two guys were crazy, man. They, they would stage shootouts at that house. The neighbors were calling the police department like crazy and always drive around with a bunch of guns in their car and, and trying to intimidate the other guys and come on. Actually, it was a van they had, and they'd go to these different strip clubs and make contacts with, with uh, criminals and, and front themselves off as these guys that dealt in stolen property and guns they wanted to buy guns particularly and and they always had a bunch of old guns in the back end of the van so i had another informant kind of during this time in kind of another and more the closer to the mob but not really a mob informant either and he got hold of me one day and he said you know he said i got these two guys been hitting the joints over here in kansas city kansas and you know they're wanting to buy guns and they're really wanting to buy anything and i told him you know i come up with a stolen car maybe but I just wanted to see what they're about. And he said, we got in their van, went from one joint to the other, and we were drinking. He said, they had all these guns in the back end. <laughs> and I knew a little bit about them then, so I got hold of them. It's like, it's a sticky wicket there. I can't go back and tell this guy anything. 
I just told this guy, I knew when he told me the story, I knew. And I said, you know, just stay away from those guys. I don't know what, I don't know who they are and, and they sound dangerous and you don't need to be messing with those guys. So I get a hold of the sting guys. I said, Hey, boy. Well, my guy was not satisfied with that. He didn't say anything to me, but he knew some other guy over there in KCK, what we call Kansas City, Kansas. It's kind of a two bit thief that had stolen cars for him what my informant did he mainly stole cars but he stripped them and, and had a bunch of body shops he would take the front ends to i've talked about him before a little bit and, and this is a different story i'm pretty sure i haven't told this one and he, he had one of his little buddies that came to him that stolen cars and and that guy you know they were just discussing things and that guy said yeah i sold a car to those you know those two crazy fuckers that that have all the guns in their van all the time and drinking all the time and the different joints around here and the, the strip clubs and said, yeah, he said, I sold him a car, but, you know, I took it over and I dropped it off at their house, and it just sat there for a few days, and then it disappeared. So my friend, suspicious, he said, well, you remember what kind of car it was or anything about it? Oh, yeah, he said, I even got the license plate number here. Uh, I had gotten a tag number off of it and got somebody to run it for me so I could find where it parked at night and got the registration because I just saw driving down the street, and that's something my guy did. He had a connection within the... uh, Wyandotte County Sheriff's Office that would get those home addresses for him. So my informant, he's already suspicious of these guys, and he's a very resourceful guy. He was, he, he, he'd learned more from me than I'd learned from him, I think, most of the time. He went back by the house where that car was registered to, and it was back home again. So they'd gotten a sting, they'd bought it, taken pictures of it, and then gave it back to the uh, owner. <laughs> and he came back to me with that fact. And I said, oh, well, I don't know, man. It doesn't sound good. So I immediately get hold of the supervisor of these guys in the sting and said, hey, here's what's going on. Well, luckily, at that point in time, they were just about ready to bust it out anyhow and take everybody down. They had enough. They'd spent all their buy money. And, and these guys that had been partying for several months anyhow, that's all they did was, was party and buy stolen property. I had a couple of single guys and informants are, uh, I tell you, sometimes they run across each other and they, they get in each other's ways, but they can be good over the long haul, but a lot of them are doing crime all that time too. That's where you get in a sticky wicket. This guy here that I was talking about exposed that sting operation. He was stealing cars all the time and parting them out. And he finally got caught because one of his drivers got by a state trooper, I think, in the stolen car, and he ended up breaking down and breaking down on him. A guy did a little time, I think. He he got, actually, I, when he told me he got popped, I got hold of the FBI. I said, you know, this guy can do you some good. And you, I didn't ever have anything on him. He was always trying to debrief me about how the police work. He even, like, took law enforcement courses <laughs> over into community college to learn more about how the police work. But uh, they used him for a little bit. I don't know. I kind of lost track of him after they got hold of him. It seemed like there was some kind of scandal going on, but I never asked what the deal was. Uh, so, you know, I had another guy that guy got caught up stealing the bulldozer, and he was never committing crimes all along. But he was always on the edge, and I was always having to go do stuff for him. So it's they're always kind of a pain in the butt, but... You get close to him. I know the guy that I didn't get so quite so close to the guy that stole cars, but a couple of the others I got really close to. So and one gal that I got really close to for a while and then I had to <laughs> I had to tell her that she's gotta go down and testify in front of a grand jury. So you always you have these things, you try to keep them out there so you can find out what's going on. One guy I could even like I'd hear something dirty about a 
another place and one guy I could send him in. I could say, okay, go in. And he was a bullshitter and he'd go in and start talking and acting like he was some kind of a criminal and, and make friends with him as best he could and come back out and at least tell me in general what was going on. But Romer, he was kind of the master at this. And I know here in Kansas City, Bill Owsley was really good at this. He had a guy named Mike Ruffalo that he used for a long time. And then the Ruffalo got himself in a position that the mob was asking him to go in and perjure himself and he goes back to Bill with it. And that's always, that's where you have to draw the line is if he had allowed him to go perjure himself in order to keep him in place, that guy owns you if you approve of that, especially if you're an FBI agent. He may not realize he owns you at the time, but he'll, you know, his native intelligence will let him know that he has some control over you and you do not, do not want that. You know, going all the way back, I know Joe Petrosino in the Black Hand days in New York City, he had to use informants to find out who was who. Heck, when you first start working these guys, you don't know who's who. They all look like legitimate businessmen many times or these guys that hang out at a particular social club. And, and so you got to start finding people who know what's going on. And the Bureau turned Joe Bellacci, and uh, they didn't really use him as an ongoing informant. He was more like a witness. There's a difference in a witness and an informant. Informant is like a source. Somebody you keep out there in place for a long period of time. A witness, you get him in and just debrief the heck out of him and keep him protected so he's not out doing other crimes. Well, let's go back to Bill Romer. I've kind of digressed enough about informants and my experience with that. And, you know, back in the 60s, the 50s and the 60s especially, Went on longer than this, but I know like even uh, Elliot Ness supposedly used some wiretaps in the 30s, but even back to the 20s. But the equipment was pretty rudimentary. And I know during the 50s, the deal was there was no law against it. And it's like, man, if you had any wherewithal and you had anybody that had any electronic knowledge in your unit, why, well, you just go, you could buy stuff from, they didn't have Radio Shack then, but they had amateur Radio Shack stores and people that knew a lot about that and hobbyists. And so you just find those guys and start figuring out how you can throw a wiretap on somebody. And it's pretty simple. You just got to go find the pairs close to their house, maybe like go up to their house and tap into the box and run a little wire to a garage across the street or apartment you rent across the street and and do it like that. Now, it's got a lot more sophisticated after that, but that's the way they do it back in did it back in those days. And the Kansas City Police Department and every other big city police department were using hidden microphones and those wiretaps uh, up until 1965. President Johnson ordered all federal agencies to remove all these electronic surveillance devices because they'd kept these things going for years. There's a famous one back in New Jersey that they did. There was They're all over. They were here in Kansas City. They threw away all those records for the most part. Very hard to find if you can't find anything. You just have to look in those old reports and you see them talking about certain sources. Sometimes you could figure those. That may add source number TS36 might be a wiretap because you just call it, use a name the wiretap a source. That's a pretty common thing that coppers did back in those days. But then everybody quit by 1968 because Congress passed the Omnibus Crime Control Act of 1968 and that made it illegal and attached criminal penalties to conduct electronic surveillances unless it was done under what they call Title III. And you hear agents talking about a T3 or a Title III or technical surveillance and it's electronic surveillance. And any audio intercept devices 
have to be approved by a court. You have to have what's, you know, basically the same as a search warrant. You have to have probable cause. And I've talked about that many times before. Classic example is we watch a place and we see mob guys going in and out all the time. We go inside, we see them sitting at a particular table all the time. Somebody else gets an informant and says, you know, I've had dirty talk back at that table. You know, we've talked about the sports book. We've made plans to murder people back there at that table where these same guys always sit and that coppers have seen them there. And there's really no other way to get into this other than the kind of the unsubstantiated word of informant. So you throw all that, all that together with the history of the place. You know, this has been a mob location for 10 years and give it to a judge and you hope you can get an order and they get them for 30 days at a time. They always have to renew them. It's a really long, tedious investigation. It's not very exciting. Those guys, my guys, when I was a sergeant down there, we started loaning out guys to go sit on wiretaps, sit at recording stations. And boy, they hated that. They hated that because you just sat there for eight hours and. Sometimes your phone might not even ring or it might and, you know, but you listen a little bit and if it seems like it's pertinent, you mark it pertinent and tape it. But you don't really know what they're talking about for the most part for quite a while. You don't know whose voice is who. You have to learn to, whose the voices are and when they get on there. And it's just really complicated. It's not easy. Now, in the 60s there, Bill Romer was assigned to the C-1 squad in Chicago, and they'd started the top hoodlum squad. I did a story on that with Bill Owsley. I had to go back and find that. It was pretty interesting about starting this top hoodlum squad, and, and he talks about the, the good old days, the FBI, and they first started investigating organized crime right after uh, 57 Appalachian meeting when Chad Groover said, oh, man, we may have to do something here. And after Robert Kennedy got, became the, in 60, what, 4, 63, 60, I guess, 61, uh, Robert Kennedy got, became the attorney general and they started really using the wiretaps more and more. And after Robert Kennedy became the attorney general, he used a lot of these illegal wiretaps and then they took those away from him. And it was devastating, these guys. They hadn't really developed the informants. You had to really, you got to really work to develop these informants and it's time consuming. It's like a wiretap. It's time consuming. And, People get dirtied up themselves. You spend too much time with uh, with these criminals sometimes and try to be too friendly with them. They're always trying to suck you in. They're always trying to give you something that's stolen. Always. I've had uh, several things offered to me that, you know, they don't say it's stolen, but, you know, you know it is, and they know it is, and they know that you know it is. Maybe you can't prove it, but you can really get caught up in a bad deal on that. Chicago FBI, the one squad, C1 squad had been pretty proficient in using this electronic surveillance. And so now they needed to find a substitute and they started in really an aggressive informant development program. And Bill Romer was the guy. He was the most active guy in the development of informants. It takes a certain personality to do that. Everybody can't do that. I've noticed over the years. One of his first ones was former Chicago police officer and also secret member of the outfit, Richard Kane. He worked really hard to recruit Chucky Nicoletti. He probably caused the horrible torture death of bookmaker William Axon Jackson when he was trying to recruit him. Because these guys, you know, they just show up at your home and go in and talk. Or they see you on the street and they're real friendly with you. If you're in a joint or something, they'll just walk up to you and start chatting you up. Until they hopefully, you know, give you, leave you their card. They just do it all the time. Some of these guys, like Romer and Owsley, was like this. They just constantly going and seeing some of these guys going to their house. You know, the famous stories, Bill Romer would go Sam DiStefano. He was assigned to try to develop Sam DiStefano. <laughs> 
And supposedly he'd go in and DeStefano's wife would have made coffee and they'd give Romer a cup of coffee. And DeStefano later would say they always put uh, pee in the coffee. So I don't know, you know, that it, it would be something he would do. But, you know, anytime a mob guy sees another mob guy talking with an agent, they get suspicious. It kind of depends on the context. And there's a possibility that they saw Romer talking to Jackson. Well, it probably wasn't the only reason they were suspicious. I remember right, there was other reasons. He was not informing. He was not testifying. Uh, one story I read that they saw him coming out of a courthouse up in Milwaukee, the federal courthouse. So they, they thought he was up there maybe, you know, testifying at a grand jury or seeing an agent. You know, it used to be the FBI's offices were always in the federal courthouse. They're not anymore. They're in Kansas City. They got a big fancy new office just outside of downtown. But, So many safeguards and fences and stuff to keep people out. It's unbelievable. But back in those days, you just walk in the courthouse and, you know, there's one floor that would basically be the FBI offices. You almost, there'd be some kind of secretary, maybe out front, maybe not, depending on the the time of day. And in regards to these FBI agents, they'll never, ever mention the name of one of their informants unless that guy's had to testify. Has been brought out in court. Otherwise, they just will refuse to say those names out loud and say that they're informant, which is, you know, rightfully so because these people have families and extended families. You paint them with this brush of being an informant and maybe they're dead, but once it comes out, they were, they're going to have a brother or sister, children, grandchildren out there in the community and they're going to be ostracized because of that. Now, Bill Romer did leave us some clues to a couple of his main informants. It's kind of an interesting story, and I really, that's the story I really want to share here. One of them was called Sporting Goods. If you follow any of the mob Facebook pages, they'll talk about this every once in a while. A lot of people don't like Bill Romer, so they'll always claim that he made everything up. But he had one that he called Sporting Goods, and he would say in some of his books later on that Sporting Goods was a street boss. And he considered him a source for more than 10 years. He'd been providing tidbits about things from the early 1970s. And Romer would say that he did become almost full-time in 1974. He never mentions his ethnicity, whether he was Italian, a Jewish, or Peckerwood, or what he was. Now, a Chicago outfit, you know, they don't have all Italians in the outfit and who are important people. And a street boss with the outfit would be a guy. If Romer identifies him as a street boss, he'd have to be a guy who managed a crew and directed some venture, like gambling or bookmaking or fencing, a good fence that had a bunch of really good boosters that worked for him. We had some of those here. One of them, Junior Bradley, was not Italian, and he had every good booster in the city going out throughout the Midwest stealing stuff, and then he was fencing it through a store he had. And in Chicago, it'll have to be within an assigned area. Kansas City is not like that. Kansas City is not broken up in these areas. It's all one. It's all mob territory, one family territory. But in Chicago, you know, they've got the south side, the north side, and the loop for sure. And several of these different crews. There was a Chinatown crew. And can't, all of a sudden, I've lost the, the names. Of them. A lot of you guys know this better than I do. But there's several different crews, and they had defined geographic areas. It's like nationally. The outfit, the mafia has, you know, the outfit gets Chicago and Savella gets Kansas City and the Savella family. And, 
You know, one family has Cleveland and five families have these particular areas in New York. Somebody has some stuff further south of New Jersey. Seemed like the, the New York families had the, the northern part of Jersey there that's basically a suburb of New York. The outfit, unlike the New York families, was not a Cosa Nostra organization from top to bottom. Now, if you th- remember, Al Capone was from Naples. He wasn't from Sicily. If you're from Naples, you're not going to be a made mafia. A member, you might be a member of the Camorra, but when you're from Naples, you don't qualify to be a mafia member. Now, one thing he did say that Sporting Goods was not an inducted member of the mafia or a made guy, as they say. And the outfit had a lot of non Italian mobsters that were pretty important to him Jake Guzik, Greasy Thumb, Jake Guzik, Murray, the Camel Humphreys, and Gus Alex. Was it Lenny Patrick? They all had crews, they managed others. After Capone, even some of them started out, Guzik was under Capone, and the other two were youngsters when Capone was going out. But all the way up, even Accardo, have always given these kinds of guys a lot of power and responsibility because they're really good moneymakers. Romer would also claim the sporting goods provided the FBI with names of corrupt politicians, corrupt law enforcement members, and just general updating of outfit activity and what individual people were into and who they were, you know, running with and doing business with. And that stuff is invaluable. It may not lead to any direct indictments or even a direct investigation, but you just got to keep up on who's who and who's doing something with somebody else and who's who they see together more often than not. And then when something else does come up, then it, you can make sense out of it and who has what part in, in whatever it is that you start working on. Romer talked about how he and Sporting Goods maintained an ongoing close friendship. and They had dinner supposedly every Friday. I don't know if that meant Friday evening dinner. I don't think I'd want to meet my informant every Friday for dinner, but he'd meet him on Friday almost every week. He even introduced him to his wife. Now, that's something I would never do, but I could see how it could happen, especially like if your guy's calling you at home, and which he did, and which if you're going to be active in working informants, they got to have your own phone number. Back then, we didn't have cell phones. So they had to have your home phone number because they may have something come up in the middle of the night that they that something's going down and, and they need to tell you about it and they may need some help or something. you got to be there. If they're a good informant, you're going to be there for them. So his wife would answer the phone, and she got to know him that way. and. And supposedly she even joined him for dinner once in a while. Now, Romer would claim later that Sporting Goods suffered a heart attack in the middle 1980s and died. He also claimed that Sporting Goods had once offered to give Romer a large sum of money so he could retire early. So they were like tight. They were, you know, Romer and him obviously had some kind of shared some kind of bonds of affection, I would say. I don't think he would lie about that. Maybe he would, but it's like an unnecessary lie that. And these guys do that all the time. They uh, they offer you money or offer you offer you stuff if you're very close to them at all. Other people would say that Romer recalled his death with sadness when he talked about the death of Sporting Goods. Uh, he would say later on that Sporting Goods was an older man who was pretty polished and was really intelligent, more intelligent than your normal mobster. He was successful. And it was more like, maybe like some supposition, maybe Johnny Roselli, but it wasn't him for sure. 1978, before Sporting Goods died, Romer left Chicago, and he would die not too long after that. So if you look back and see who was a street boss during these years and died about this time, 
Again, Johnny Roselli was important, but he wasn't particularly a street boss, and he wasn't particularly in Chicago. He was out in the West Coast all the time. He was a polished, sophisticated kind of guy you might be friends with, but kind of guy you might even introduce your wife to, I guess. But uh, but he really was not in Chicago enough. There was a guy named uh, was a street boss at that time who died during that time maybe a little bit earlier, Dominic DiBella, but he was a real well-known, unpolished guy with a big reputation as a killer, and not the kind of guy you're going to bring around your wife at all. There was a couple of non-Italians, a guy named Les Cruz and Ralph Pierce, who were probably the leading non-Italian members of the outfit in the 70s. Cruz was called Killer Kane Cruz. He was a gambler that had oversaw outfit rackets in the suburbs on the north side of Chicago. He would have had an intimate knowledge of what politicians would bribe and, and who was corrupt and kind of the general day-to-day activities, which is what Sporting Goods provide him with. And he had worked with Murray Humphreys over the years and Gus Alex, who were the, the noted political fixers for the outfit. The other guy, Ralph Pierce, he was a gambler and a bookmaker, and he had his crew on the south side. He was one of the top Jewish gangsters associated with the outfit during these years. All during his career, Romer claims to have worked really hard to make a case on Ralph Pierce, and he died of a heart attack in 1978. So Pierce is probably the best match who would be sporting goods. My money's on Ralph Pierce, mainly because supposedly Romer had talked about and was assigned to make a case on him, and somehow he just never made that case. Romer would describe his other informant in his writings as Romano, and he was a top-tier monster who was high up in rank in Chicago mob. But he also described him as an inducted LCN member, which means he'd have to be a Sicilian. In his book, Cardo, Romer indicated indirectly that Romano was a capo. He had maybe a couple of crews working for him now. It wasn't Dominic DiBella because he wrote when Dominic DiBella died, he was a capo on the north side, and we weren't able to ascertain who his successor was. So I went to Romano, who was a made guy in the same position as DiBella, and learned it was Vince Solano. Another interesting fact about this revelation is that just before DiBella died, the entire hierarchy of the outfit met at a restaurant to pay him some tribute, I believe, because he was dying. Now, they say it was after uh, Joy Lombardo was made because he was the only one wearing a suit. and Maybe they did both things together, but everybody's seen, if you pay any attention to mob stuff at all, and especially the Chicago outfit Facebook pages, there's a famous picture called The Last Supper Photo, and it was taken just before DiBella died. And so this guy, who would have been a capo at that time, would have had to have been there at that picture. So then you can start narrowing it down, like, you know, it wasn't Iupa. <laughs> you know, it wasn't uh, a couple of three others that were there. It wasn't Lombardo, because he had just gotten promoted to capo, I believe, or was he just made, you know, I get those mixed up. Sorry about that. Now, there's one man that is the most possible and probable, I think, and that's Dominic Butch Blase. It's well known that Romano had been kept informed by Romano about Sam Giancana all during the 1960s by somebody who had stayed close to him during that time and even visited him down when he was down in Mexico. And Romano remained close to Giancana all during that time, visited him in Mexico, and then when he came back, he was like his guy back up here. It's 1974. 
Romer would write about how he dealt with Romano. He said he'd often meet him for dinner and just as kind of interesting. I've done some few things like this. You just talk about the mob in general. And so you state some mob gossip, probably some, you know, something you probably know isn't true. Maybe even you make it up. And then you wait for them to correct you. And then they may correct you, hopefully, and give you what you're after about who's what. You know, he said, well, old Vince Solano, I heard he really wanted to be a capo when DiBella started getting sick, but I don't think he's going to get it. You know, Romano might say, no, you know, you're wrong on that. He's going to be the next capo. People like to straighten you out. I learned that from an old-time detective in the youth unit. He told me, you know, when you get these kids in here, he said, you know, like, start talking to them about some kind of crime, the crime that you accuse them of, and then start talking about how it went down, but get all the facts wrong, and pretty soon they're trying to straighten you out. And then pretty soon you get them kind of down that path of straightening you out, and then you come back and say, hey, wait a minute, I thought, how'd you know all that? I thought you weren't there. I thought you didn't know anything about that. Uh, you know, it's a psychological tool that works. But he didn't want Romano, or who we think is probably Butch Blase, to feel like he was snitching or he was a rat. He just let the guy, you know, let his ego play and let him play it out. Romero's had written him in as, uh, you know, Romano, an informant, and probably give him a, what we call a jacket. You write out all the real details and give it to the supervisor and put it in the snitch file so people, if you leave or something happens to you, people will know who that was. And so Romero gets transferred out of Chicago, I think, to Tucson. And so other FBI just then knew that this guy had been working for him, and they went to him, and, and actually they documented this. They didn't say it was Butch Blase, but... They said they approached Romano to work with him, and, and he, like, went off on him. He said, I've never been an informant. I never met that Bill Romer. I don't know what you're talking about. And so then the FBI started pressuring him a little bit, figuring, well, he's weak. So they put him in jail for a while for refusing to cooperate with the grand jury investigation, but they never could break him down. Now, they say Chucky English might have met the description, too, but my money's on Blasi. I think mainly because of Giancana and somebody's researched into this and they pulled up a bunch of old Giancana reports and there was a particular informant that was talking to Bill Romer about Giancana right around when he was in Mexico and when he first returned. And and as you know, if you know anything about the murder of Sam Giancana, who was uh, had been the boss, he was a guy that Bobby Kennedy got after and after he got promoted to boss. And, and they were after him so hard, that's the one they did lockstep on, where they just followed him and got on the golf course. They'd be the foursome right behind him and drive up into him. I'm sure that was Romer. And followed him, you know, right on his bumper everywhere he went. And out, he'd go out to Las Vegas. He had that girlfriend out there who was the McGuire sisters. And. They embarrass him in front of her and things like that. And he finally went to Mexico. He had other action going in other parts of the world, really. And it's some casino action, I think, in the Caribbean. Maybe even a casino in Iran. I can't remember exactly. But he had other gambling action going. And But he was out of it as far as the outfit was concerned. Then he comes back. And Blasi's his buddy when he comes back, but Blasi, Accardo, and Ayupa, they didn't really want him to come back in, and he was trying to come back in. And, and his man, Richard Kane, I think, was working with him on that because somebody killed Richard Kane. Uh, one of, uh, that's when it came out that he had been one of Romero's. He'd been one of, uh, Romer's informants. And Blasi was the last guy to see Giancana alive that night when he was killed. He'd been over to his house earlier. And 
And they say that the surveillance got pulled off and Blasek came back and killed him and then left again. He was never charged with the murder. Nobody was ever charged with that murder. But, you know, he met with Romer. Romer would report that he met with Blasek the very next day. And Butch would claim that Sam was peaceful and content when he died, but that outside forces had killed him. And, you know, that whole CIA thing was going on at the time. And that's when they killed Roselli. Those guys kind of tried to work with the CIA and kill Castro. And, and the old school outfit guys in Chicago, Ricardo and them, they did not like that. They didn't think you should have anything to do with it. Nick Savella was like that. He didn't even like anybody even talking to an agent, even like in any manner, any manner at all. He refused to speak to you. He was just, you know, get out of here. I'm not talking to you. He would, you couldn't get him to like strike up a small talk or anything. A lot of these guys, you can get them to strike up small talk, joke about smoking, joke about something. But Ricardo did not like that. And Jen Kana was not like that. But apparently Blossie was. So my money's on Blossie. And Blossie ended up dying a natural death. So that was the story of Sporting Goods and Romano. Bill Romer was an interesting guy. I tell you what, regardless of what you think, there's a lot of good facts in his books. He had must have had, he had a prodigious memory to remember all. And, and if he's like Owsley, he copied a lot of stuff and took it home so he could refer back to his old reports and things like that. I know Bill, Bill really, he had a great memory, better on the best memories I ever heard, but he also brought a lot of stuff home. Then he did a lot of, Freedom of Information Act request to help write his books, and uh, Romer probably did the same thing. And that, and then he's really close with a lot of other agents, so what he couldn't remember, he could call them up, and they would talk to him about that. So that's the story of Bill Romer and his two main informants, uh, Romano and Sporting Goods. Thanks, folks. Well, folks, thank you for listening, and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast Reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like in real life. Also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content, so if you want more Mob information that you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate, and have a donate page, and, and each podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is, and at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99 or $2.99 if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the 
court files and link them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation and then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about Gangland Wire. You guys all know. I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening and listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.